At some point, the public health emergency will lapse and not be extended. I think this is a conversation that I get the sense many hospitals are are just not talking about yet, but they need to with urgency. You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about value-based care plans. First up, let's talk about hospital finances. The past year has not been kind to hospitals and health systems in the U.S. The COVID-19 pandemic and macroeconomic pressures brought a flood of operational challenges for healthcare provider organizations, like workforce shortages, inflation, and rising expenses, and unpredictable spikes in demand. And most of the financial relief offered by the government has run dry. Now hospitals are crying for help. Many of them are losing money and cutting off services just to keep the lights on. An industry report from the American Hospital Association said that about half of U.S. hospitals would close out 2022 with their operations in the red. The issue is worse in certain regions. In late November, the Texas Hospital Association warned that 26% of its rural hospitals were at risk of closure. Just before the new year, the Washington State Hospital Association outlined billions in nine-month losses among the state's hospitals. What's more, Service reductions are causing bottlenecks. Many facilities are filled to capacity, leaving others without care. Industry leaders believe that these challenges will likely continue into 2023. Lisa Goldstein is the senior vice president at the counseling firm Kaufman Hall. She sat down with Dave Moyo to talk about what hospital leaders will need to focus on in the new year. Here they are. Lisa, you and I spoke roughly a month ago about what hospital leaders should prioritize going into 2023. And I remember your near-immediate response was liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. Uh, Why is having a strong cash reserve so vital right now? Yes, great question, Dave, and it's great to be here. Liquidity essentially buys a hospital time. It is the financial cushion uh, that, in particular, not-for-profits have when things go unexpectedly, like the pandemic, right? Who would have thought? It <laughs> It really provides that financial foundation um, during very difficult times. It's think of think of it as um, as an certainly it's an asset because it's liquidity, but it's a great uh, fallback or cushion, uh, like a rainy day fund, if you will, which I know many of your audience listeners understand what a rainy day fund is. Sure. So then what are your practical suggestions for how a hospital could bolster that, especially for, as you said, the nonprofits that can't really simply sell off their equity to try and gain some more cash? Right. They're, they're not-for-profits. They don't have the ability to raise funds via, say, a, an equity offering, an IPO, or anything you know, in a publicly traded market because they are not-for-profit. Um, there are a host of strategies. We could go all night uh, about uh, how to preserve liquidity and build and rebuild liquidity. And it it is so important uh, for organizations to focus on that. There's so many things, right, that they have to focus in on right now. Um, we are, I am concerned about 
three big things that the industry is facing and certainly having liquidity, you know, will help address them. Those, those three will be, and this speaks directly to liquidity. I think we're in a financial twindemic right now. And let me explain what that means, Dave. We've all heard about the clinical twindemic, right? We have COVID cases, we have flu cases hitting at the same time. And some some hospitals are even reporting this triple-demic, right, with RSV, especially with, with kids. Mm-hmm. The financial twindemic is something similar in that we've got two big things hitting at the same time financially. One is indeed the cash position that, that we're talking about, where the cash positions have simply cratered. And the other dynamic happening at the same time right now is that the bottom line has vaporized, right? Many hospitals are showing losses that we've just I've just never seen before in in the healthcare you know industry and and we've been at this for a long time. So we have this financial twindemic that's happening. We have um, many hospitals are in covenant jeopardy. In other words, they are at risk of not hitting their financial covenants, which is what they agreed to right when they issued debt. So they're having a hard time keeping up with their end of the bargain. And the third thing where, you know, liquidity becomes very important is labor. And, you know, to say that we're in a labor shortage is an understatement. It's it's very pronounced, profound, deeper than we've ever seen before. And and that point number three, labor, drives point number one and two, the twindemic and the covenant jeopardy. So, you know, getting back to your first question, liquidity can provide um, a resource for hospitals to to help navigate through the twindemic, the covenant issue, and labor. So it's very important uh, for not-for-profit hospitals in particular to maintain and grow that liquidity um, to help mitigate very difficult times right now. Now, you said the L word, uh, labor. It's often cited as the top pain point for most hospitals and health systems right now, especially as they have to rely on pricey contract labor um, as a substitute. Now, that topic could be an entire webinar on its own. But what is the mindset that you would suggest hospital leaders be taking when they're looking to address this shortage that, in some sense, is out of their hands? Yes. I mean, you're right. We could go all night. COVID was a tsunami or an earthquake, and the labor shortage is the aftershock. So. Um, this is front and center for any any given hospital. Labor is going to be at least half of their expense base, right? When you think about it, it's a high-touch, um, highly person personnel-oriented environment. We're not making widgets. So labor, labor is the issue right now. And there, there are a host of strategies, right? There's compensation, benefits. There's part-time strategies, internal flex staff. There are funding of uh, faculty positions, right? Because there's a dearth of faculty, apparently, for nursing schools. There's loan forgiveness, scholarship programs, international hiring. And of course, there's really getting down to the nitty-gritty, Dave, which is using data, productivity measures, algorithms, you know, AI learning to better staff units, right? Just pen to paper or mouse to mouse pad. And that takes a lot of work, rolling up the sleeves and really thinking about this. I, um, I will tell you that um, we are hearing that 
the per dollar rate of contract labor for nurses is coming down. We're hearing this anecdotally, and we're hearing that the number of hours hospitals are using contract or agency labor is also coming down um, as the number of COVID cases, et cetera, declines. Um, but that's, that's short term, right? This, the labor challenge is going to be a multi-year problem. There's, there's no doubt about it. So kind of a juxtaposition to the idea of not having enough workers with finances in a bit of disarray. There are some situations where there are uh, hospital layoffs or the shuttering of low-volume service lines, for instance, delivery wards or pediatrics. Right. And that seems so backwards when we think about how there's a labor shortage, but it's the reality. It's what has to happen for some of these hospitals. What would you say to hospital leaders now who are having to make these tough choices within the next few months? Yes, these are indeed tough, tough choices. And um, I, I think 2023 is very much the year to, to think differently, to lead differently. Uh, perhaps the mantra of we have to provide it all to our community needs to be revisited. And I think many, many hospital leaders are doing that right now with their boards. You know, maybe we can't afford to provide it all. Maybe providing it all will not be the highest quality service that we should be providing. These are very tough discussions. And, uh, you know, maybe speaking of management, and we've seen a few high profile examples of systems relaunching reorgs or flattening their management structures. I want to say, uh, Jefferson Health in Philadelphia was one pretty recent case that that was coming out. They were looking at sort of reorganizing a lot of their recent acquisitions and potentially laying off uh, some people in administrative roles. Do you have any thoughts on these types of restructuring initiatives in terms of potential cost savings or any advice if it comes to administrative job elimination? Yes, you know, I think these are tough situations. I'm not going to comment directly on, you know, any particular health system. Sure. Um, but, but very difficult conversations, um, that need to be had. And I think they are happening across the country. I think these discussions are agnostic to location, size, type of hospital, uh, not for profit, for profit. It, it doesn't matter. There's just this new, there is a new financial reality that warrants these conversations. Um, these may be painful. Uh, to do, but again, back to to my world and my perspective, there has to be a a sense of, and there is fiscal responsibility for the long term here to stick around for the long term and provide the services that you know as best they can and as safely as they can for for the local community. So it's 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 something that we are seeing and hearing coast to coast. So. Something we discussed uh, about a month ago that struck me as a challenge very specific to 2023 was gearing up for the end of the public health emergency and maybe more specifically Medicaid redetermination. There's an analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation estimated anywhere from 5.3 million to 14.2 million Medicaid enrollees could lose their coverage once the pandemic restrictions on disenrollment were lifted. Now, is a bit of a moving target as we just learned a few weeks ago when states would even be able to start the process. But what are some of your thoughts on how hospitals should tackle those unique circumstances? Yes, I am so glad you brought this up. I think this is a conversation that 
I get the sense many hospitals are, are just not talking about yet, but they need to with urgency. The Kaiser numbers, others that have predicted we have the potential to see millions of individuals lose coverage. So go from Medicaid to, say, uh, self-pay or uninsured. Now, we don't know what the numbers are going to be exactly. And there could be folks that are presently on Medicaid that have employment now. And when the Medicaid eligibility uh, drops, as the PHE and the states go through redetermination, they may be able to pick up healthcare coverage through their current or new employer. Others may be able to go from Medicaid to some type of exchange program, exchange coverage product. And I think many hospitals will uh, provide resources or financial counseling to help individuals go from Medicaid to some type of exchange product. But then there's going to be individuals who don't have either option door number one or door number two and will become uninsured or self-insured. And that's that's what concerns me um, as an advisor, as a former analyst of this industry, what's going to happen with those numbers. And I, I haven't heard anyone offer up a number, Dave, that says X percent will still be covered under some type of healthcare insurance coverage exchange or, or through an employer. So this is, this is the unknown. What we also know about the public health emergency is that there were additional FMAP funds, right, from the feds to the states that came along with the PHE. And, and we already know that those additional funds, it was plus 6.2% of FMAP monies, will decline back to zero. The 6.2 additional will go to zero by New Year's Eve this year. So we're going to have a financial impact. We're going to have an impact of Medicaid to, to potentially uninsured folks. Um, and that means more bad debt for hospitals. Uh, so it could be yet another impact to the bottom line. Uh, the good news is, and there is good news, is that Congress has approved for uh, a two-year extension telehealth very innovative, right, that came out of COVID, and uh, hospital at home, acute hospital at home has also been extended. Um, not everybody has a hospital at home program, but for those that do, uh, Congress has said, we're going to keep that. As an analyst, I'm, I'm very nervous about the public health emergency. I just don't think people are talking about it enough and getting ready for the reality of this, which would be a rise in uninsured, which means a rise in bad debt, i.e. hospitals not getting reimbursed for providing the coverage. So, uh, I'm so I'm delighted that you brought it up. I think it's a very real concern. Well, it's definitely something, at least we, us in the news side are keeping an eye out for. Right, uh, right. And it's, Dave, it's part of this, you know, financial twindemic, right? Mm. I mean, this will impact, continue to impact the bottom line, the P&L statement um, as we progress through 2023. So, uh, you know, we want all types of twindemics to go away, <laughs> but until we work through the lifting of the PHE and, and the Medicaid disenrollment, uh, we're going to continue to have, you know, this double-sided uh, financial hit. And that's, that's what folks need to remember. This is not just a one-time moment. Uh, this is going to be ongoing for the foreseeable future. So alongside all these challenges on a financial scale and big picture scale, Hospitals also have to contend with other hospitals that are operating in a competitive environment. And a lot of the challenges we're talking about are short-term, immediate, 
and some of them are very long-term. It's kind of a tactics versus strategy situation going on here. Can you dig a little bit into how leaders can juggle their focus between some of the short-term and long-term thinking, both in terms of keeping their doors open and preparing for another health system that wants to come in and take their market share? Yes, that's an important question and issue that you're raising. I mean, short term, the tactics are, you know, refinding the bottom line, making your financial covenants. Of course, though, you got to think about long term and and, uh, think about, here's an image for you, Dave. Think about the Olympics. Think about the high jumper. All they have to do is crest right over that bar, right? Don't touch it, mm-hmm. just crest right over it. And the same could be true for, again, short-term tactics, making your covenants. All you got to do is crest right over it. But part two of your question, long-term, you know, that's, that's no way to run an organization, right? You want headroom, headroom to that bar, headroom to that covenant. So longer term, this, this is another moment, if you will, for the industry, for the hospital industry kind of their call to action to ensure long-term viability and providing, you know, that cushion, liquidity, that headroom on strategy, because you're right, there are a number of competitors out there, newfangled competitors, you know, I call them the disruptors. Um, and if you think they're, they're not here yet, they are. We have news for you. They're here. They're not even emerging. They're already here. And they're very tech-oriented, perhaps, you know, Wall Street-funded. They are looking for everything that either walks out of the hospital inpatient unit, right, to do all the follow-up outpatient care, post-acute care, or they're looking for everything before someone walks into the hospital, before there's a need for an inpatient stay. They want to do the testing, the imaging, the blood work, the clinical, the, the the, the pre-op, if you will, everything before the patient walks in and then everything they want, everything when the patient walks out of the hospital. They are looking for, you know, convenience, high customer service, obviously profitable. Most people may not understand this, but the hospital world is very competitive. It's got, you know, for many, it's a public mission to treat all, provide highest quality care, but there's a, a corporate-like uh, environment to this. They have to function with speed to market like a for-profit and maintain that mission. And the competitors are just circling, looking for everything outside of inpatient care. So this this yet has to be another component to board discussions with senior management to respond, if not, you know, play offense, if you will, not defense, but offense. Uh, to, to what's happening with the disruptors out there. So a little bit of tactics to answer your question and, a, and some long-term thoughts about the competitors as well for you. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on Podnosis. It's great having you. Great to be here. Thanks for calling, Dave, anytime. The United States spends more on healthcare than any other country. Yet Americans' health outcomes are far from the best. More and more healthcare professionals are calling for funding reform. The Affordable Care Act, which passed in 2010, included provisions that paved the way for Medicare and other payers to move away from fee-for-service model toward more value-based care. 
It allowed providers to get reimbursed for quality rather than just the number of services provided. The fee-for-service payment model is still mainstream, but alternatives like value-based care have picked up steam, with more payers and providers adding them to their roster of contracts. Mark Friedberg is a senior vice president of performance measurement and improvement at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Last month, Blue Cross Blue Shield announced several values-based contracts with state health systems. Mark sat down with Fierce's Anastasia Gladkovskia to talk about value-based care plans. Here they are. Hello, Mark. Nice to be chatting with you again. Yes, nice to chat with you again. Our conversation about a month ago um, was really fascinating to me when we spoke about Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts and these pretty historic value-based contracts um, that you have announced. And so I wanted to do a deeper dive into uh, this topic. And to start, I thought we could talk a bit about your background as a health services researcher for uh, the RAND Corporation. And I wanted to know if um, value-based contracts came up a lot in your work then. Yeah, a great question. They, they certainly did um, and in, in a bunch of different ways. Uh, one way was uh, I either led or participated in um, evaluation teams of um, the effects of value-based uh, contracting programs on primary care practices, like in uh, patient-centered medical home uh, pilots and demonstrations. I did some work for the American Medical Association, um, uh, some qualitative descriptions of how uh, provider organizations responded to uh, alternative payment models and value-based payment, um, and then did a, a fair amount of statistical modeling of how um, value-based payment models um, can contain the degree of measurement error um, because it's not in anybody's interest, you know, not the payer, not the provider, and not the patient uh, for um, bonuses or financial penalties to um, be issued uh, just due to bad luck alone or good luck alone. You know, statistical noise is kind of the enemy in a lot of these models and um, containing that is important. Yeah, I could see how um, that experience would be really important to the work that you're doing now, um, designing some of these uh, value-based programs um, and uh, really being in charge of performance measurement and improvement. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, taking your experiences um, and research that you've done, uh, what does value-based care mean to you? Is there a correct way to think about it? Value-based care and alternative payment models sometimes get used interchangeably, and I think that's that's fine. Um, each of these terms has a bunch of different definitions. Um, generally, when people are talking about improving the value of care, they're either talking about increasing you know, the quality of care while holding cost of care constant, or reducing the cost of care while holding quality constant, or better yet, you know, increasing the quality of care while um, containing the cost of care. So um, you know, lowering the cost of care would be ideal. That's rare to achieve, but you know it's the theoretical um, uh, goal that everyone's reaching for. Um, and uh, payment models that are intended to encourage those outcomes include um, pay for performance, shared savings, um, and uh, capitation, um, among others. You know, bundled payment, for example. And you know, last month when we last spoke, we had been talking about Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts announcing these exciting agreements with uh, the state's largest health systems. I'm wondering if you know, since value-based care came up even back in the day when you were doing this work as a researcher, um, why has it taken so long to get here as a country, as an organization? You know, what are your thoughts? 
And maybe I'll just talk a little bit about um, uh, value-based care at Blue Cross of Massachusetts. I think that's a um, kind of a nice representative case for the country and then talk about um, how equity um, got layered onto it. Mm-hmm. So um, in 2009, um, this company, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, um, put into place the Alternative Quality Contract, or AQC. Um, and that ended up actually being the model for most national ACO programs or accountable care organizations. It preceded the Affordable Care Act by a couple of years. And I know this, the AQC model was, was quite influential in designing um, the Medicare Pioneer ACO program, the Medicare Shared Savings ACO program, and a bunch of um, other ACO programs at the state and federal level. In, in essence, what the AQC does is um, it's virtual capitation um, with um, upside and downside risk share. So it's a, it's a shared savings model where each provider organization is at risk um, with both you know, potential bonuses and financial penalties, uh, depending on the cost of care. And along with that are um, some quality measures that figure into the contract in two ways. First, for most AQC groups, there's a standalone pay-for-performance component the more, you know, the higher you score on quality measures, the more money you get mm-hmm. as a provider. And that's pretty straightforward. But the other place where uh, the quality measures figure in is in the risk share. So um, if you have very low quality scores, you may only get to, you know, uh, enjoy 30% of the savings you produce, mm-hmm. but face 70% of the penalty if there's a cost overrun. Mm-hmm. However, if you do really well on quality, that might flip to 70-30. So you, sh- you, you enjoy 70% of the savings that you produce and um, only get penalized 30% of any cost overruns. So the quality component has a major financial implication uh, for the provider organizations. This is all intended to create a business case for large provider organizations to invest in the kinds of capabilities um, that will improve the value of care. When you're thinking about this, it seems pretty... Um appealing. I mean, as a health system, wouldn't you want to prioritize these sort of contracts so that you sort of incentivize your providers to do good work and produce good outcomes and you are incentivized financially um, to do so and to to reap the rewards of some of those savings? Why do you think not every health system, I mean, more broadly, why do you think that fee-for-service is still like the traditional mainstream approach? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. I, I don't know all the answers, but I can say a, a couple of factors that seem important. One is just um, the design of the program and the kind of support that um, payers are able to provide to uh, provider organizations that are just getting into risk for the first time. I think it can be very scary um, for a provider organization, especially um, one that's considering um, a contract that might for the first time include downside risk uh, to, to get into those contracts. They, they might have you know, well-founded concerns about going out of business. Um, and, uh, 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 if the, if the payer, um, sort of doesn't have an on-ramp for those kinds of, uh, providers, it can, it can be tough to get uh, provider systems interested. Oh, and the support, you know, goes beyond the design of the contract though, um, to, for a provider to do well in one of these value-based contracts, I think it's you know, critical, uh, to, to share, um, timely and complete and accurate data during the period of performance. So usually these contracts or on an annual cycle, even a contract that lasts multiple years, like like the AQC um, generally does, will still be paid on an annual basis. And um, it's very hard to fly blind during that year. If you're a provider organization and you don't know where you are relative to um, the kind of benchmark you're trying to achieve, 
um, it can be a really frustrating experience. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that that's critical to have in place. And Blue Cross has done really well at that um, by by having this kind of system in place for almost 15 years now. Um, additionally, you could give a, um, a provider group um, good data that's timely and complete and accurate and a contract with incentives in place and say, good luck and um, talk to you in a year. Um, that might not be as successful as what Blue Cross does, which is to, to not sort of um, throw folks in the deep end and, and see if they swim. Instead, you know, we really want them to succeed. So we have um, technical assistance teams that um, are Blue Cross employees, and, and these are folks who um, are free of charge uh, to the provider organizations that work in these contracts who uh, provide guidance on um, how to interpret data, um, put them in touch with consultants, um, and other resources who can help them improve their performance with the, the end goal of just maximizing the likelihood that they're going to achieve all the benchmarks, which is good for them uh, and, and good for our members. That makes sense. I, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate that tip. Blue Cross has been doing this work clearly for a very long time, but these contracts that you recently announced are one of the first um, in the country that tie rewards to equity. Can you talk about what facilitated that? Why has it taken so long to incorporate those metrics in these types of contracts? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'll, I'll give a little context to what quality has meant since the beginning of the AQC within um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, and then explain what changed in 2020. We use the uh, Institute of Medicine or IOM uh, definition of the quality of care. Um, that has six dimensions, uh, safety, timeliness, efficiency, equitability, effectiveness, and patient-centeredness. And so equity is in there. However, uh, there were no explicit performance measures tied to equity measures uh, in the structure of the alternative quality contract, similar to you know every um, ACO contract and every value-based contract I've ever seen or heard about uh, in this country. And I think the the hope was always that um, if you incentivize overall quality to improve, the organizations that are going to do best in those kinds of incentives are automatically going to um, address equity as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because um, uh, you know maybe some of the most effective things they could do to improve overall uh, quality of care is to address um, uh, underserved populations they may serve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we did see some evidence of that being true, but it was, um, you know, partial. Um, so there was a paper in Health Affairs that I think was published in 2017 by uh, the first author, his name is Zuri Song, who's a researcher at Harvard, looking at whether the alternative quality contract had any effect on equity of care. And, and they did find um, that for a few process measures of quality, um, equity did seem to improve. But, uh, you know, you can't sort of say, well, that that's uh, uh, good enough and we're, we're done. Um you know, I think we could do a lot better by tying equity measures explicitly um, into the contract. And so why did this happen in 2020? Um, two big reasons really opened a political and policy window for us to move quickly into um, equity in an explicit way in these contracts. The first was the the unequal burden of the COVID-19 pandemic on communities of color. Um, that was, I think, really obvious to anybody who was, um, you know, not in some kind of a, uh, in a bubble. Um, because everyone was talking about the epidemiology of the, of the pandemic, mm-hmm. and that just really highlighted um, inequities in health. Uh, the second was uh, the, the racial justice events that really um, happened in the summer of 2020 um, with the um, murder of George Floyd, um, the, the death of Breonna Taylor, um, many other um, uh, unfortunate and, and similar um, events 
um, right around that time period, uh, just bringing to the fore that, uh, you know, our society could no longer afford to um, under address or ignore racial and ethnic inequities uh, across the board, including the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. So that created, I think, a lot of energy within the company. Um, and our outgoing CEO, who just retired as of uh, December 31st of last year, uh, Andrew Dreyfus, um, said, okay, we're going to do a, a few things here. Um, we're going to elevate equity of care so that it's no longer just con- uh, contained within the quality dimension of the company, but make it co-equal to our other strategic priorities. So, um, you know, summer of 2020, we went from a company that was focused on quality, um, affordable healthcare with an excellent consumer experience to coming to focus on quality, equitable, affordable healthcare mm. with an excellent consumer experience. That meant that resources became available to, ex- to focus explicitly on equity um, in a way that um, they hadn't been previously. And um, people uh, throughout the company in, in all divisions, um, you know, not, not just my division, but you know, contracting, um, actuarial, finance, um, um, consumer experience, uh, digital, enterprise technology, um, it now became a job of hundreds of, you know, at least a part of hundreds of people's jobs mm-hmm. to work on equity um, mm-hmm. in, in their main um, area of focus. Mm-hmm. And of course, for, for my division, that meant my division is the one that sets the quality targets as part of the alternative quality contract. So now we were tasked with also standing up equity targets. We're incorporated, they were intended to be fully incorporated into all aspects of the alternative quality contract from the data reports we give to providers to the kind of technical assistance um, uh, we make available to providers uh, to the ultimate inclusion of um, financial incentives that are explicitly linked to equity measures um, uh, within the alternative quality contract as a way of sustaining the business case for large provider organizations to make investments in new capabilities that are you know now explicitly targeted at racial and ethnic inequities in care. Fascinating. Yeah. I've heard from others in the healthcare space that really the most effective way to address this is to make this uh, a complete a priority for an entire organization and its ecosystem and not just, you know, silo it, like you said, um, into one department or, you know, assign it to one uh, executive. I wanted to ask to just dive in a little bit deeper. Can you give an example of how a provider might be measured on inequity improvement. I know, uh, you know, each provider is going to have different uh, baselines that they're starting at. So probably their the measurement process is probably going to be different for each one. But can you talk about how you built out those um, those metrics and you know what are you measuring these improvements against? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I, you're really um, referring to something that's. Uh, an important element of the design of pay for equity with the way we've set it up. And I want to preface all this by saying we set up pay for equity um, a certain way. We think it, uh, we believe it is going to be effective, but we don't know for sure. Um, but it's also tailored to our market because we got input from all of the uh, provider groups who are in our value-based contracts um, about a year before any of these contracts went live. Um, and one key element of it is that every group is compared to itself in the past on measures of equity. They're not compared to each other. And we thought this was important um, because we want the groups to share and feel free you know, to, to share without fear of any kind of financial penalty um, effective methods that they've developed and deployed internally to address equity of care, inequities in care. Um, if you did the opposite uh, or the, the, the normal way of setting up a pay for performance or value-based contract, which is usually you, know, you grade all the providers on a curve relative to each other at the same time. 
Um, those who do the best get the most payout. Those at the bottom of the curve um, get the least payout. That That is actually a financial um, disincentive to share the secret sauce that you may have within your organization. We not only care about each provider organization improving their uh, the internal inequities um, that we see for our members, but we also want to uh, uh, improve between provider inequities. And, and those can occur when we have providers who serve um, disproportionate shares of our minoritized members and also have um, you know, greater uh, opportunities to improve their performance relative to their peer groups. Now, your, your question about which measures are involved, you're absolutely right. Um, not, no two groups have the exact same set of measures. A lot of it has to do with um, the size of the group, uh, mm-hmm. the demographic composition of the group, and the magnitude of the baseline inequities. And the way pay for equity works, and this actually gets back to what I was saying earlier about containing the role of um, measurement error in these contracts. Um, it turns out intuition and statistics really agree here. And that's not always the case, but they do in, in this case, which is um, to maximize uh, the reliability of measurement of inequities, you want to focus first on the biggest inequities that affect the most patients. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, if you didn't know anything about statistics, um, that's like intuitive. That's my re- where you might start anyway. But that's actually what a quantitative approach yields. And that's why we have a somewhat different set of measures for every group. But one measure that's common across all four of um, the initial um, groups that are involved in these contracts is uh, control of blood pressure. And that's not a surprise because that affects a large number of our members who have high blood pressure and because we have pretty large statewide um, inequities among our members in blood pressure control. And those are right on our website where anyone can see those. Um, and not surprisingly, every provider organization of any size um, also has those internal inequities and they're a good target to focus on. Are there other limitations or considerations that providers need to think about? Are there limitations like EHRs that are not capable of capturing this data or um, maybe departmental silos that prevent this sort of qualitative monitoring? A great question. Uh, one thing, you know, I, I kind of glossed over, but I think this is really important is uh, the work that we as a plan had to do on our um, underlying data infrastructure and completeness of race and ethnicity data that we have um, for our members. And every provider has the same um, challenge in general. So, um, until we started engaging with providers specifically on understanding um, the completeness and accuracy of race and ethnicity data, um, we, we, we didn't really know what we would find. And, and what we did find was um, a wide range of um, uh, levels of maturity on internal you know, databases on race and ethnicity. Some providers might have a single instance of an EHR, may have been collecting race and ethnicity data, um, had trained their staff on doing this for, for multiple years, and had high completeness. But others might have, you know, 15 or more different EHRs internally, um, had, had not had an opportunity uh, previously um, or, you know, an external organization asking them to do this uh, to, to look at the completeness or accuracy of the race and ethnicity data on any of those EHRs or even to look at the data standards they're on. Mm. Um, they might not be on um, the federally mandated data standard, which was not mandated until um, last year for providers. Um, they may not be able, therefore, to exchange um, race and ethnicity data internally within their organizations, let alone with us. Um, and um, 
and therefore have a really hard time tracking how they're doing internally on race and ethnicity uh, based um, inequity measures. So uh, a lot of what we've been doing with the provider organizations has been working on data standards, data infrastructure, and data collection best practices for um, gathering data from on race and ethnicity uh, from patients in a voluntary uh, manner. You know, healthcare, I think, has a lot uh, to catch up on in terms of data interoperability and just <laughs> efficiency. Um, so it's good to know that uh, there is some aid to providers there. A last question is, um, you know, who are the most promising innovators in the value-based care space in your view? That's a great question. One model I think people should be aware of if they're interested in, in value-based care that incorporates equity in a, in a relatively explicit way, and that's the REACH ACO model. Mm-hmm. One of the newest um, alternative, uh, sorry, uh, uh, accountable care organization models uh, to come out of um, uh, the Medicare program. And uh, it did something, I think, really innovative with setting um, financial benchmarks uh, based on communities served with an, in, with an explicit intent uh, to allocate more resources to historically underserved communities. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. And don't forget to tune in next week on Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat. Thank you.